Our sermon passage this morning comes from Ruth chapter 1, verse 19 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. So the two of them went, uh, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Join me as I pray before our time in the word this morning. Great Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that you said says guides us. And it guides us into all sorts of places. And I pray that you would be with us as you guide us into this suffering of Naomi this morning and Ruth. And that you would encourage our hearts by the power of your word, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Uh, So this morning as we continue to look at this story of, of Ruth and as we explore even just these few verses and the end of chapter one at the close of this kind of opening scene... What we're going to find is it has much to tell us about the topic of suffering. And, you know, suffering is one of those things that it's not a fun thing to talk about. It's actually one of those things that we prefer to ignore and pretend that doesn't exist. But Scripture doesn't let us do that. And I think one of the questions for us that rings out is how do we respond when calamity happens in our life? Uh, How do we respond to disappointments, to disasters, to our suffering? What do we do with it? And maybe, you know, more connected to this text, what does it mean to suffer as God's people? Uh, You know, Naomi is experiencing great calamity, as she calls it, because she, you know, she, she lost her husband, and then she lost her sons. And in, in, in that, you know, she's a widow and she's lost an ability to provide for herself. She's alone. You know, there's no welfare from the state. She'll be completely dependent on other people. And the question that we find here, or what we see happening here, is that it brings her into a state of despair. And, you know, I think there's two things we're actually going to see in this text this morning. For one, we are going to see despair. And the question we ask is, How does despair find us? How does despair settle into our hearts when we're experiencing suffering? When we're experiencing loss and calamity? But we're not going to stop there because we're also going to find that despair is actually not the end of our suffering. But hope is. And the hope that we find here is surprising. The hope that we find here, it's actually subtle. But it's beautiful. And in this, I think what we're going to see is often our perception of reality and actually what's, what's really happening, what's true, are, are two different things. 
And so as we consider the suffering of Naomi and our own suffering, we're going to start with the, the, talking about our despair in suffering. Our despair in suffering. And so, you know, last week, right, Ruth just bound herself to Naomi with some of the most beautiful words that you can find in Scripture. They begin their journey back, and they finally arrive. They finally come into Bethlehem. And what does it say? It says the whole town is stirred because of them. Right? There's an excitement happening. You know, after 10 plus years of being away, she's finally come back. I don't know if you've ever been away from a place for a long time and then you finally came back and people maybe didn't recognize you or uh, maybe you didn't recognize someone else. Like the other day I ran into someone who, it's just been five years since I've seen them. And uh, even when they told me who they were, I still wasn't seeing it. I was like, are you sure you're that person? I had to like go into my memory to decide, is this really the... Am I getting this confused in my brain? But no, it was, it, they just look completely different. The way they talked was different. This is kind of what's happening here. It's been 10 years, and after much sorrow, after many tears, she's finally returned. And they ask, you know, as in disbelief, is this, is this Naomi? Is this the same person who left 10 years ago? Actually, we find that actually she's not the, the same person. Naomi responds to them, to their question with this. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Right? She has changed. She has actually experienced transformation, but this is not the kind of transformation you want. Um, you know, Naomi is a, is a name that means pleasant. So she's saying she left pleasant, and she's come back as Mara, which means bitterness. So she has come back bitter. You know, and one of the things we've learned even in the first chapter of Ruth is that names mean something. Uh, they define characters. And now she's saying, I'm defined by my suffering. I'm not just struggling with bitterness. I am bitterness. I'm bitterness personified. Why is she so bitter? Well, because she's experienced great suffering. She was full, she had her family, and now she comes back with nothing. She's alone. She says, why call me pleasant when God has brought this upon me? She's in despair. And you know, if, if I could, just the, my definition of despair that I'm using right now is despair, I would say is the absent, absence of, of hope. When you are despair, things aren't just partly bad. They're all bad. There's no silver lining. There is no the sun will come out tomorrow. Uh, there is just darkness. It's the forever winter land. That's what despair is. And I think there's three aspects to the despair that she's feeling here. And I think we're going to probably relate to all three of these in some ways is when we suffer. And the first is this, it's isolation. Right? When we suffer, we tend to isolate ourselves. And you know, who is with her in this moment that she's conveniently leaving out? Well, Ruth, right? Standing right next to her. Ruth, who just committed her life to her. In life and in death, she's going to stay with Naomi. And she says, I have nothing. Ruth must be thinking, well, I, hello, I'm, I'm, right, I'm right here. But this is what despair does. It leads us away from others. So even when people are around us when we are despairing, we don't see them. We don't want to see them. 
Despair puts us in a dark room by ourselves. And this happens to us. When we suffer, we tend to isolate. You know, this is what actually happens, you know, in the natural world, world too. When an animal is wounded, it goes and it hides. It's a natural instinct. Why, why is this? Because suffering makes us vulnerable. When we suffer, right, it means that we have lost something, something important. And for her, it's her family. And, but it happens for us in, in many ways, right? Relationships lost, friendships lost, job loss, health loss, any kind of loss and disappointment that we experience in life, they make us vulnerable. For us, it makes us vulnerable to more loss, doesn't it? And the only way to experience no loss in life, the only way to protect yourself from this is to isolate yourself, to care for nothing, to be alone. And isolation then becomes this means of kind of taking control of something that seems out of control. It's a coping mechanism. And sometimes, you know, isolation can look like, you know, you stay home. You know, when Sunday rolls around, you don't worry about getting out of bed because you can't bother to be around other people and their happiness and their children, and all those things that you dreamed for for yourself, so you stay home. And, uh, and you physically cut yourself off. But for those of us in this room, because you're physically here, that's at least not you today, there's still other ways that we can hide and isolate ourselves. We might be physically present, but we hide in our hearts. We don't share. We shut, our, shut ourselves off. You know, like Naomi, you put yourself physically in community, but you shut down and you don't let anyone in. And this leads to the second aspect of, of despair and suffering, which is emptiness. Emptiness. We see this here right in verse 20, 21, that she went away full and comes back empty. And one of the things despair does is it, it only focuses on the things that are lost in suffering. All she can think about is what she has lost. It's the only thing that matters to her. I mean, when we suffer, the same thing happens. But all we can think about is that thing that we don't have, on that thing that was gone. And the pain is loud. It screams at us. You know, for, for two years, when we were living in St. Louis, I had this profound pain in my right foot. It's starting to come back, and I don't like that. But, um, but this pain was so loud, it was all I could think about. Every step I took, it was like someone was taking a hammer and just hitting the bottom of my foot. And it was like all I could think was my body is just one giant foot, and that foot is on fire with pain. It was throbbing. And it was all I could think about, all I could focus on. It didn't matter if I cut my, my finger. All I could think about was my foot. And when we suffer, it's easy for us to be all consumed by the volume of it. It is so loud sometimes that it's all we can think about. It's all we can hear. We can't see any other part of life, any other blessing that might be there. And this is Naomi. All she can consider is what was lost for her. And this creates an even deeper bitterness. Right? The taste of bitterness that's in her mouth just grows so much that she accuses God as the source of her problems. Which is I think the third thing we find about despair and suffering is that it accuses God. It accuses God. We see this, right? And the language is stark in verse 21. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. 
Right? This is God's doing. He has emptied her. He has testified against her, spoken against her, brought calamity upon her. So all her problems, she says, are God's fault. He did it. You know, there's an aspect to this that sounds a little bit like psalms of lament happening. But I might suggest to like a Jew hearing and reading this in the ancient world, I think they would have picked up something very different about the way Naomi is talking about her problems and God. You know, in the Psalms of Lament, uh, the, the, the prayer says a lot of things to God. And some of the prayers of lament in Scripture actually sound a lot like this, talking to God about their problems, about their pain. In fact, Psalm 88 ends with some of the most desperate words in all of Scripture, and it says, darkness is my only friend. But there's a key difference between what Naomi is doing and what happens in the prayers of lament. And that's who she's talking to. Right? In the prayers of lament, they're talking to God. They're bringing their anger, their frustration of God to God. And here, that's actually not what she's doing. She is taking her anger and directing it to those around her. And so she's not actually bringing it to God. And, but why, why doesn't she? Why doesn't she do what the psalm, psalmists do? Because in her despair, she doesn't believe that God is good anymore. She has lost hope that God is good, that he is trustworthy. Right? She is saying in her heart, you know, the almighty one, the sovereign one, the powerful one, he has turned against me. And she lacks hope. She says he did it. You know, and one of the things that this ignores is a, is a major aspect of the story that we talked about in our first week uh, which is, you know, the reason why this calamity has even fallen upon her and her family, and it's because of their sin. It's because they left the promised land. They went looking in the land of their enemies for food instead of trusting God and repenting and turning to him and marrying foreign women. And now Naomi finally comes back. So she's physically there, but she still has no trust for Yahweh. She has returned in body, but her heart has not yet repented. I mean, this happens to us in our pain, right? When suffering in our life begets more suffering and begets more suffering, we can say, is God really sovereign? And if he is sovereign, how could he in the world let these tragedies happen? And instead of turning in trust, you know, like prayers of lament require trust, we can accuse him. But we don't do it to his face because that's a little too intimate. And to do it to his face means that we have to trust, that we have to have some hope that he can actually do something. And so we curse him to ourselves and our hearts and we curse him to others. And it causes us to despair, to lose hope. You know, and in one way, you know, Naomi's going through a lot. One can hardly blame her for, in her suffering, to lose hope. You know, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Things are broken in this world. And so for us, for those who are the people of God, for how do we avoid the way of despair when troubles come our way? When calamity comes upon us, how are we supposed to endure? And this is where we see the turn in the story, and we're going to see hope in suffering. We're going to see our hope amidst suffering. And there's a couple really key aspects, I think, to being able to hope when we are suffering. And 
One of the problems, though, is I think sometimes we're so eager to get to hope that our tendency can be to, to pretend like the suffering isn't real. And we can misapply the idea of hope by shortcutting to the end of our pain and thinking that our pain isn't real. But true hope in suffering doesn't minimize pain. It doesn't ignore hardships. But true hope actually steers us patiently to the other side. And our hope in suffering begins in an unusual and uncomfortable spot. And it's this, that we can hope because God has appointed our suffering. We can hope because God has appointed our suffering. But Craig, you might think, didn't you just say that we shouldn't blame God? It sounds like you're blaming God for our troubles. But there's a key difference between blaming and accusing God and the idea of God appointing suffering in our life. And so I'm going to try to walk carefully into this very delicate topic. And, uh, but I think it's actually key for us to rightly understand suffering in our own lives. Especially if we think that God really is who he says he is, that he is sovereign over all things. And so I'm going to borrow some words from, you know, Tim Keller has a great book on this topic called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. So if this is a topic that's close to your heart, I encourage you to pick up his book on that. It's very wise. So I'm going to be borrowing some words from him and some words from a pastor friend, Nate Walker, on this, on this topic. And, you know, when Nate talks about this particular point, he talks about how the word appoint actually can help us guard against two, two common errors when we think about suffering. I think one way that we think about God in, in our suffering is we can think that God simply just permits evil to happen, as if he's just standing back and, and, and letting, it, letting it go and letting things play out the way they play out. It's as if he doesn't have control over things. But the problem with this is that Scripture is very clear, and one of the hopes of Scripture is that our God is a God who is near, right? He's not standing far off, but he is near, and he actually could stop any suffering if he chose to in any moment, And also, God directs all things towards his purposes. So it is wrong to simply assume that God just merely permits evil to happen. But on the the other side, and this is where we take it too far, on the other side, we might say then, oh, then God must be creating evil. But the Bible says that that's not true, that he's actually opposed to evil. In Romans 3, it says that we're the ones that bring evil into the world. So evil isn't something that God invents or, or authors. But he takes the evil we invent and actually uses it to fulfill his plans. You know the famous words at the end of Genesis that Joseph speaks to his brothers who tried to murder him? He says, which you meant for evil, God meant for good. And perhaps as we consider this topic, the psalmist can help us. Maybe Psalm 23 can help us see how this works in action, right? We, We probably know this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me by streams of water. We like that part. And then it says he also leads us where? Through the valley, the shadow of death. We don't like that part. It's a very real shadow. It's dark. It's in the valley. It's scary. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He says, I will not fear. In the midst of the shadow of death, the scariest of sufferings that come upon us. We will not fear. How can he say that? Because you are with me. When you walk along the paths of righteousness, when you walk with God, it will lead you to the valley of the shadow of death. But the shepherd is the one that's leading you there. And he doesn't 
leave you. And this is the hope that he isn't far off. And what this really means is that any suffering he appoints for you in your life, he appoints to himself as well. Any suffering that God appoints for you in your life, he appoints to himself as well. How can we trust a God who appoints suffering? Because he is there with you. He is not just hanging out. He is there leading you through it, bearing with it, in, in it with you. He, he isn't escaping it. But he actually is the one that takes it on himself. This is what makes him good. He is the God who is near. He is the God that doesn't run from us in the midst of our suffering. And so this is the most foundational aspect. The most hopeful aspect of our suffering is knowing that we're not in it alone. And this leads to, I think, a second aspect of hope and suffering. Is that our suffering is not the end. Uh, You know, sometimes... When I'm reading a novel that's really long, I'll actually jump to the end to find out what happened. Maybe I'm the only one. Don't, don't hate me for this, this. I'm being vulnerable before you right now. And one of the reasons I do that is because I want to know, is this story worth reading? Because sometimes I get into these parts, I'm like, okay, if this goes the way I think it might go, this book is probably not worth it. I'm going to put it down and find something better to do. And so, uh, you know, this is actually true for us here, right? If the end of the grand story stinks... Like, if the hope that we find in Scripture at the end is kind of like, meh, then what's the point, right? What's the point of hanging on through suffering? But if the story ends in profound hope, if it actually ends in resurrection, if it ends in the end of all suffering, then we can endure because our suffering is not our end, and we find this ray of hope Surprising here at the end of the story in verse 22, right? And Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab. So they're returning into the land. And what do we find? Even though Naomi said what she said, that I'm alone, Ruth is not scared away from her. She's not scared with her pain. She's not scared from the way she's even like accusing God. The first thing we find about hope here in the midst of this final scene is that hope happens in community. Hope means that we suffer alongside each other, with each other, that we aren't easily scared off by each other's sufferings. That that burden is not that hard to carry when we're with each other. You know, some of you in here, I know, are in the midst of great pain. And one of my privileges of being a pastor is you share your pain with me. But there's also some of you that I don't know your pains, where you are suffering silently. You haven't yet felt like you could open yourself up. And you've experienced a lot of suffering. And yet there's, there's others of you that maybe look at your life and you think, well, gee, I, I actually haven't had that hard of a life. Maybe I, I, you know, you don't need to manufacture your suffering. It will come for you. <laughs> that wasn't a joke, but I'll take it. Um, <laughs> Uh, but one of the things we find is that, you know, in community, uh, we're actually bound to each other. And, when, and what that means is it says, when you suffer, I suffer. And we patiently listen to each other's pains as we, we work th- through them, right? Nobody's rebuking Naomi here. They listened. They, they hoped for her. And they weren't scared by her pain. And God is not scared off by your pain either. 
It's the great line, it's okay to not be okay. We have to hope for each other when we have no hope and we act as Christ for each other, stepping into each other's pains, not through our own strength and our own abilities, but because of, of our confidence in what Christ has done, that he is there with us. And as we do this, one of the things that happens is we keep walking forward. There's something physical happening here, right? Naomi's walking into the city, walking with Ruth back to this Bethlehem, which means bread basket, from the land of, of no God to the land of Bethlehem, of bread. They're returning, right? The, the famine is over. And, you know, sometimes we have to move physically towards something before we're there in our hearts. And oftentimes, often, it's our hearts are, are delayed in this movement, working through suffering. And one of the beautiful things is that seasons come and seasons go. They're unrelenting in that. You can't stop winter from coming, and you can't stop spring from springing. And the symbolism here is rich, right? Winter has ended. ended. Even though Naomi can't see it yet, harvest has come. And what is harvest but new creation? It's happening. Whether you want it to or not, you don't get a choice in the matter. It's not dependent upon you, but on the keeper of the seasons. And an aspect of the good shepherd walking with us in this is that he doesn't leave you in the valley of shadow of death. He doesn't lead you just into it, but he leads you out of it. And Naomi is being brought into the time of spring. The same is true for us, that our suffering is not our end. Right? The God who empties us is the God who fills us. And at the end of Ruth, it actually says that, Naomi, that, it actually says that Ruth is more than seven sons to her. And so what we find is that Naomi actually was not brought back empty after all. But she was brought back more full than she could ever know. And we see this in spring. New creation, resurrection, winter is over, things can grow, things are producing again. So what is our end, friends? No matter what you're going for, your end is resurrection if you put your faith and hope in Christ. And we can be sure of this because of the resurrection of Christ. Right? As death wasn't the end for Jesus, so all those who are bound to Christ in faith, their end is not death either, but resurrection. Right? And on the cross, what does Jesus do but take the weight of all our suffering? He takes the weight of every pain. Even the pains that you don't even know about in your life. Even the pains that even haven't, haven't even happened to your life. He takes those too. On the cross, takes the weight of all our suffering. All our pains. All the things that we, the suffering that we bring upon ourselves because of our sin. And all the sufferings that we have because of the effects of sin in the world. He takes the weight of all of it on himself. Killing it on the cross. This is the weight of his glory. Right? This is the hope in suffering. This is what we cling to in the midst of darkness. The suffering is not forever. That it's temporary. And even when we do suffer, we join ourselves with the suffering of Christ. Receiving whatever he appoints to us because he is with us. And in this, we actually learn to see that he actually is good. That he is faithful. And, you know, for those of you that have lived longer than others, I bet you could look back in your life and see the times where God has brought you through. And those are the moments that help you through the pain that you're experiencing now, aren't they? Because you've seen it. You've felt it. You know it. And this is what we share with each other. So even those among us who are younger that haven't experienced that suffering, well, when it happens, we can point each other to the hope that we have in Christ. May we learn to hope together. 
May we be a, a body that learns to share in each other's sufferings as we share in the sufferings of Christ. And may our despair not last through the night, but may we be a community of hope as we walk with Christ through the valley of the shadow of death together, knowing that our end is resurrection. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are willing to bring us through the difficult times of life, that you don't abandon us. And even when we think maybe you have abandoned us, you are still there. You are not easily scared off. Help us to hope when we have no hope. Help us to share our hope with each other when we have nothing left. May we do this for your glory and for the witness of you and your kingdom. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.